The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Hello and welcome to another episode of Serious Fun. I am your host, Dr. Brian Carr, and I've been thinking about World War II a lot lately. Now, part of that is cultural. Uh, Dunkirk, a Christopher Nolan film set during one of the pivotal moments of the war, was a massive hit this summer and a likely Oscar contender. Just a couple days ago, Wolfenstein II, The New Order, a sci-fi alternate history video game where players fight to take back America from an occupying Nazi force, was released to critical acclaim, big sales, and an aggressive and timely ad campaign championing the game's anti-Nazi credibility. Naturally, of course, that credibility uh, goes back several decades, uh, including the original Wolfenstein 3D. This Friday, November 3rd, Call of Duty World War II will release, taking players back to the conflict in a more realistic setting and putting them in the boots of a soldier in the European theater. This is to say nothing of the ongoing political and social arguments of the last year or so, and their potential correlation, or lack thereof, to this historical time period, though in-depth discussion of that might have to wait for another time. I've also been thinking a lot about one of my favorite early gags from The Simpsons, specifically from the season one episode, Bart the General, where Bart and his friends wage a military campaign to strike back against Nelson, the school bully. The episode ends with Bart offering a heartfelt message to the viewer. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, contrary to what you've just seen, war is neither glamorous nor fun. There are no winners, only losers. There are no good wars, with the following exceptions. The American Revolution, World War II, and the Star Wars Trilogy. Now, at the ever-present risk of ruining the joke by explaining it, what I find funny about this is that it equates World War II with the War for American Independence, as well as a fictional conflict between good and evil, clearly suggesting that World War II has taken on this sort of mythic image in popular culture. Um, And I was curious, where does that come from, and why is it there? And like any myth based in fact, is there room to challenge the narrative and ask questions about it? For example, how much of our cultural relationship with this conflict is colored and affected by our popular culture, and vice versa? To answer these questions, and honestly a lot more I had in the wake of this sudden resurgence in World War II interest, I talked with UWGB Associate Provost Cliff Ganyard. Now Cliff works on a lot of things around here, including student learning and instruction, research and assessment, professional development and more, but he's also a historian, and he's got a lot of interest in the era, especially from the German perspective. It also just so happens he's a very big fan of comics and movies and popular culture as well. This is a good one, folks. Please enjoy my discussion about World War II and popular culture with Associate Provost Cliff Ganyard. here with Associate Provost Cliff Ganyard. Um, of course, we talked about in the intro that Cliff is an expert in uh, World War II history and uh, kind of the culture that surrounded that conflict. Uh, and we're going to talk about how popular culture has sort of grappled with the uh, whole concept and notion of World War II. But Cliff, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, so I always like to start off by having my guests give the sort of story of, of how they got to this point, of how your life has led you, the decisions you have made that have put you on this podcast. Um, but sort of, what's your interest in World War II and kind of what's your background in studying it? Uh, okay, so uh, I'm an historian by training and I went to university and ended up studying history. Um, I didn't want to study history at first. My father was a history teacher, taught at SUNY Buffalo where I went to school. Mm -hmm. And so I did everything to avoid becoming a historian um, (laughs) and obviously was not very successful at that. Somewhere around my sophomore or junior year, though, I I discovered history uh, and European history and German history in particular. Um, I took a course with Charles Stinger on the Reformation. Fun fact, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation right now. Uh, and then that led me down into history and uh, actually spent some time in Germany and studying Germany. So I went on to graduate school and, and um, really focused on German history. Uh, I studied with a, a, 
a gentleman by the name of William Sheridan Allen, who wrote mm-hmm. a couple of really important books on Nazi Germany. And so that, as they say, was that. Um, and just kind of went down that road uh, and did my dissertation on nationalism in 1920s Germany. Uh, studied at a group called the Young German Order, uh, which I've written on. And um, then started teaching. And I teach a course on Nazi Germany, which is kind of my signature. Uh, I should comment, I'm not really... I guess I wouldn't characterize myself as an expert on the Second World War. Uh, It's clearly something that if you study Nazi Germany, you have to study and teach as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never liked war, Mm -hmm. um, and so I I avoided it for a while. But what fascinates me about the war is the way uh, that people treat it and the way that people try to interact with it and understand it, I guess. Um, So that is that... What you'd like. That's yeah, sort of no, sure. that's great. And so what would you co- sort of characterize that uh, relationship or the kind of way we try to understand this specific conflict? I mean, of course, your specific mm-hmm. interest is in sort of the culture, the government of Germany at the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, looking broadly as a, as a scholar, as a, you know, a consumer of culture yourself, how do you think we as sort of a society, especially on the American side of things, kind of grapple with World War II? What is our relationship with it? Uh, that's a big question. It is. So <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get more specific as we go, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, so what's our relationship with World War II? So, I mean, one of the basic facts is whether you like the war or not, it's the defining moment mm-hmm. uh, of the modern world, right? Across the world, biggest conflict we've ever had, um, deadly, arguably the deadliest conflict, most destructive conflict. 60 million people die mm-hmm. world, uh, worldwide. Um, you know, countries are destabilized, infrastructure is destroyed, people are displaced. Uh, incredible inhumanity is committed in this war. Uh, and so that leads to a, a number of questions. Well, a number of questions, though, I guess we could kind of narrow it down to one, one word, and that is why. Mm-hmm. Now, why does this happen? And this has then led to all kinds of, of industries. I mean, there are, um, it's been a while since I checked on this, but the last time I checked, there were more books written on Adolf Hitler and the Second World War than any other subject in the world except wow. Jesus Christ. Really? So uh, clearly it's a fascinating topic, and people are continually fascinated with how did it happen? How did Hitler come to power? Why did Hitler have the views he did? Why did Germans follow Hitler? Mm-hmm. Why did the war start? What were the causes of the Holocaust? Uh, and there are no simple answers. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it... F- makes for a very contentious um, topic, one that there's always debate on. You know, there's no single answer. So the the, the, the story is still happening, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I was reading an article this morning about uh, a scholar at uh, University of Aberdeen. Thomas Weber is his name. He's just discovered documents that have shed a whole new light on Hitler's early political career mm-hmm. uh, and is going to change the story of how we understood the development mm-hmm. of, of the Nazi party. And 70 years after, you know, 80 years after the events uh, as they occurred. So uh, just really fascinating. That's part of it. But, you know, for Americans in particular, the Second World War is the good war, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's the war that was fought for good causes. It had a good outcome. Um, it's the war that allows us to kind of characterize ourselves as the white knights, Um you know, kind of riding off and saving the world from uh, from evil. So it's very convenient. It's a very useful narrative moment when the United States kind of steps onto the world stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the first moment, but clearly after World War II, uh, the United States is one of the two superpowers, clearly one of the dominant forces in the world. Uh, and so it's a really important moment for that reason. And because of that, it becomes highly contentious. So right. if you challenge any of that narrative, then there must be something wrong. Uh, and nobody wants to challenge that narrative. No, you know, Everyone wants to believe that uh, Americans are good people. And by and large, Americans are good people. But mm-hmm. I, I think you know what I mean, Brian, that you know, they want to they uh, believe that Americans would not act as the Germans did right. during World War II, that Americans would not commit atrocities. Mm-hmm. We would not fall for demagogues. We would not start world wars, mm-hmm. um, despite what evidence might be counter to that. Right. 
Well, and even if you look back at the time, our hands were not exactly clean in any of this. That's right. I mean, you yeah. had, of course, uh, at home, Japanese internment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was still, like, there are POW issues that we perpetrated as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it has that narrative, this idea of good versus evil. Mm -hmm. And I think what I find kind of interesting about this is that this maps really nicely into pop culture. Yes. Like, this, this whole idea of a good and an evil, a hero and a villain... Um, this is sort of just naturally, and I, and I wondered, you know, if we, if we think about, you know, you mentioned that there are so many more books written about this particular topic than just about anything else out there, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and I would also argue that of all the wars and all the conflicts and all of the historical issues in the 20th century, let's just focus on the 20th century for the sake of argument. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that World War II has probably had more films made about it, more, you know, uh, oh, I'm sure. TV shows, more just entertainment and pop culture content in general than any other conflict. And, you know, I think there's some historical reasons for that. Certainly, if you look at, for example, like comics, comics really come into their own as an American art form yeah, around the time of World right War II. Right at that II. moment, yeah. Um, so there's obviously that they're sort of intertwined. You look at characters like Superman, Captain America, and that sort of thing. But we still keep coming back to this well whenever we need sort of this like good versus evil, heroes versus villains story. Um, it's it feels like, and I don't have like documents or like uh, statistics to back this up, but I feel like every year at the Academy Awards, there's one World War II movie. Oh, there must be at least one. <laughs> at least. Um, or a movie that's at least on the periphery of World War II or associated mm -hmm. with it in some way or talking about the Holocaust. And um, this is not to downplay any of this, but it is kind of interesting that we keep coming back to this well for that sake. And of course, we had Dunkirk over the summer, which mm -hmm. is, again, yes. probably going to show up as a Best Picture nominee. Um, we've got Call of Duty World War II coming out on Friday. We're recording this on October 30th. Um, we've got just constant, uh, the, the, there's a new Wolfenstein game. We're constantly coming back and talking about World War II, not just in our media, but in our culture. So I do find it fascinating that we talk about this idea of the good versus evil aspect of it. Yeah, and there's no doubt, right, that the Nazis... I hesitate to use the word evil. Evil is is a very convenient word, has as good mm -hmm. to kind of just blanket characterize a person or a group of people. And if they're evil, there's some kind of supernatural force that is causing them to do evil, right? Mm -hmm. The the classic Christian narrative of the devil made me do it. Right. And I hate that narrative because as you've implied, when it comes right down to it, the people who committed the atrocities during World War II were human beings. Right. They had a choice before them. There may have been extreme and extenuating circumstances around what they did, but nevertheless, they were human beings who made a choice. And what's really important about that for me is that that means that anyone, mm -hmm. at least in similar circumstances, could make the same choice. Any of us. We, you know, we don't know how we're going to, to behave. So that narrative of good and evil can be very convenient it, you know, it does make for a great story. Mm -hmm. Novels, comics, movies, whatever it is, we all want to be the good guy, you know, vanquishing the bad guy and saving the damsel in distress. Right. Um, although that might not be politically correct anymore. But you, you understand what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, of course. And so it's, it's very easy to see why that becomes, uh, becomes popular. It's also interesting to me, and maybe you have some insight into this, Brian, about how are how that narrative then has changed over the last 70 years. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if you look at, for example, um, films mm -hmm. coming out during and immediately after the war, they very clearly presented this narrative. Americans were the good guys and they vanquished the, the bad guys, the evil, good triumphs over evil, mm -hmm. uh, and then we live happily ever after. And so I think of a film like John Wayne's Sands of Iwo Jima. Right. Uh, which was made in, I think, 43 or 44 mm -hmm. or something like and that. And Wayne was certainly not a guy who was going to make a film that was subversive or challenge the military. Exactly. Politically speaking, he was very much a staunch, I guess we'd call, uh, I, I think you'd probably even back then call him a pretty staunch conservative, pro-military sort of guy. Yeah. and But it clearly made for propaganda purposes mm -hmm. too, right? This is how the Japanese behave. We're not like that. We're better than them, quote unquote, better than them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we fight uh, an honest war, whereas the Japanese do not fight an honest war. Therefore, we deserve to win. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's, it's the few heroes, it's the few John Wayne standing between the evil Japanese and you back home in the right. United States. Um, but then that changes over time, and it's interesting. So I'm going to skip a bit. Yeah, of course. But then go to the 1960s, and, you know, the films that we get are things like the, uh, Force 10 from Navarone which I think had uh, Harrison Ford in it. Or am I getting that one wrong? I'd have to look it up. Anyway, 
um, the Dirty Dozen, Kelly's Heroes, right? And so the war then becomes this kind of backdrop for adventure films, mm -hmm. in in my opinion. So it's interesting to see how um, that shifts. And, you know, the filmmakers don't even care, I think, in the 60s and maybe 70s about any kind of historical veracity. I love Kelly's Heroes. This is one of my favorite films, mm -hmm. uh, Clint Eastwood film. But uh, the best character in it is Donald Sutherland's character, who plays a tank commander. Mm -hmm. And the guy rides into battle, blaring rock and roll from speakers mm -hmm. on his tank. Well, I'm pretty sure rock and roll didn't exist yet. I, I was going to say, we're, a couple, <laughs> we're about a decade or so removed from that. Yeah, and he's basically a hippie. He's laid back. I mean, it, this is the era of, of uh, you know, tune in, turn on, and drop out. Right, and that's what Sutherland's character is. He's a, you know, he's a drug addict in 1945 uh, 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 Germany or something like that. A great film, but has nothing to do really mm -hmm. with the film. Right. Uh, well, and certainly not historically accurate. Now, right. the, the whole idea of um, films is propaganda too. I, I remember when I was a kid, we would get those like uh, like you go to the dollar store, you get like a tape that had like Looney Tunes cartoons on it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they were all in the public domain at this point, and they did not have the quality control of Warner Brothers sort of picking and choosing what's on there because it's just mm -hmm. whatever company puts it out. So you'd get like these really weird, and I didn't really understand at the time. Like I knew this was about World War II, but I didn't really realize just like the the propaganda and like how popular culture really was used to sort of perpetuate. That idea, like, you know, Bugs Bunny or Donald mm -hmm. Duck or whoever going out and fighting the Nazis and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, or like this sort of broad sort of racial and ethnic stereotypes that went with that. Um, do you think that there's, a, and like, and I wonder, because I see sort of parallels between how we talk about this war and this conflict, um, even today. Mm -hmm. uh, and those sort of like early propaganda things of, of the sort of like simplification or really kind of exaggeration of the enemy and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And cartoons from the era are fantastic look, to look at. Uh, you mentioned Donald Duck. There's a great one called Their Fuhrer's Face mm -hmm. from 1943 or 44. It, gets, uh, it shows up a lot on the internet as a meme. Yeah, <laughs> like it's, and, you know, based on a popular song from the time, but, and it's actually, that one's actually, has some fair fair accuracy in some of this stuff but you know donald duck dream is we find at the end is dreaming that he's he's living in nazi germany and what would life be like and of course he ends by you know thank god i'm glad i live in the united states mm -hmm. or something like that and bugs bunny hair meets hair is a, is another one there's a really nasty racist one called bugs bunny nips the nips mm -hmm. um, about the pacific war uh, and but clearly, you know, and of course, we should remember too that in the 40s, Warner Brothers and, and to a lesser extent, the Walt Disney um, shorts that were shorn, shown before newsreels or films were kind of intended more for an adult audience, right. not the children that we think of mm -hmm. uh, with with that today. Um, but I think there is a lot of that. You can see it frequently in the way that at least in the, the lack of critical perspective um, sometimes in the way that war uh, is portrayed, and often in the kind of glorification of it, uh, of the adventure of war, mm -hmm. we too easily gloss over um, the tragedy of war, the violence of war, and, and the ugliness of war, um, and so on. There have been moments when we when we have stared that in the face. And the '90s are a good moment of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of Spielberg's uh, films, you know, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. Uh, both of which were critically acclaimed and were and at least attempted to be realistic um, in their portrayal. But very often we we are too easily distracted by mm -hmm. the adventure, I think. And I wonder too, because you know we, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, and that whole notion of our sort of approach to the war and kind of the way we sort of grapple with it is like from an institutional memory standpoint mm -hmm. has changed. And you know, there was a point um, where, the the sort of like you know the the hero narrative was the prevalent sort of view in the 40s 50s and that sort mm -hmm. of thing but we weren't really aware of the atrocities being committed or the, the sort of the scope and the nature of the holocaust or anything like that does that represent sort of a turning point where we start to kind of take a more critical or more like somber approach to the war uh absolutely and uh, especially if you start to compare different national narratives mm -hmm. uh, and this is definitely the case with germany for example but i think it applies to to the united states too and so for the united states there's a period of kind of um 
there's almost a grace period, right, where we revel in our victory. We're the good guys after all. So it's okay to be a little fast and loose, tell the narrative. Um, you know, history is written by the victors after all. Um, so we'll tell the story as we remember it. Uh, in Germany for about two decades, um, there is a refusal to deal with it, again, for pretty obvious reasons, mm -hmm. right? You, not only have you lost the war, but it's been revealed that your country committed these terrible atrocities. So we're just not going to talk about it uh, for a long time. But in the late 60s, then, you have a different generation, right? The so-called baby boomers yep. grow up. They come of age in the mid-60s. They go to college. They start taking college courses, and naturally they start asking questions. Well, what is World War II about? What actually happened? Uh, and in Germany, you know, you have kids asking questions like, gee, Dad, what did you do in the war? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a really tough question for a lot of families. So after about 1968, this, this generation in Germany is some, sometimes referred to as the 68ers. Mm -hmm. There are a lot more questions more history comes to be written in the in the late 60s and early 70s that ask these qu kinds of questions uh, and so forth. And then a key turning moment, turning point happens in 1979. And there is a, a made-for-TV miniseries ca series called Holocaust. Mm -hmm. It's an American show. Uh, it was very popular. Um, James Wood's first film, I think, and mm -hmm. it had an all-star cast at the time. Uh, but it was shown in Germany in 1979, and uh, they had a couple of historians ready, standby to ask questions and so forth. I thought, well, you know, we'll get the few history buffs. It had an enormous impact on Germany. The phones rang off, uh, off the shelf. They had more questions than they could deal with. And what had happened, of course, is that whole generation of Germans had been confronted with these horrific events, and they didn't know anything about it. And so there was, from that moment on, there was a, a, a much greater interest uh, in World War II, in the Holocaust, what Germans had done, what Germany had done, uh, and so forth. And, and then in the 1980s, you have that kind of national debate about how do you understand your own past. Right. Um, and you see some of that in the, in the United States, too, particularly by the time you get to the 1990s, the Cold War has ended. That opens up space. Mm-hmm. To be more critical, um, we don't have to be the white knights anymore, right? Right, because we're we're not facing down communism, so we can be more critical about our past. And you do get films like Schindler's List, um, Saving Private Ryan, even more critical films like The Thin Red Line, mm -hmm. um, and things like that. Uh, and you get other popular culture too. So Art Spiegelman's Mouse, for mm -hmm. example, one of the greatest graphic novels ever. That one actually predates this. I think the first volume comes out in 81 or 82. That sounds about right. And I then the second I, yeah. volume is early 90s. But anyway, right in this period, you know, you ha and, and, and Spiegelman fits into this. Um, half of that, of the graphic novel, is a rendition of his conversations with his father, Vladek, mm -hmm. who had survived Auschwitz. And so it's a really interesting moment where this younger generation starts questioning the older generation that had been involved in all of this. And so it really does change how we understand that narrative. Mm -hmm. and, and I find that fascinating because, again, it is sort of... Because uh, I remember when I was younger hearing about Mouse and it being a big story in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the mainstream press and that sort of thing. And this was really one of the first times you had a, I would argue, especially, uh, certainly in my memory, but in kind of recent memory, a really sort of like critical kind of unflinching look mm -hmm. at what right. the situation is really like now told through an artful metaphor yes. of, of, of mice and cats and that sort of thing. Um, but this was a turning point because you started seeing that book taught in schools. You started mm -hmm. seeing that book used as a sort of way to introduce these concepts. And, and I guess my, my, uh, the thing I kind of wanted to, to, to talk about here is, you know, you could argue that popular culture sort of births, both serves to support and also kind of challenge the mythology mm -hmm. around world war two. But it sort of does ebb and flow. And I think it also depends on the medium, too, right? Yeah, Like, absolutely. there are certain media that are more willing to engage with it. Certainly in, like, books and the printed word and even comics, there is more of that attempt to kind of, like, talk about the nuances and the real 
human costs. But certainly, in like uh, with a few exceptions, with like action films um, in particular, there's not a lot of room to do that. And you know, certainly in video games, which is an area of my expertise, you know, mm-hmm. the conflict between these these people, uh, uh, you know, between the Axis and the Allies and that kind of thing, is simplified pretty dramatically. Yes. We have the unquestionable like villains of the Nazis. We have the unquestionable good of the heroes. But what gets really weird is that in some games you're asked to kind of take on the role of the Axis, mm-hmm. or you're asked, and and it becomes sort of this. Um, it reminds me a bit of the whole idea of the sort of Civil War recreation mm-hmm. um, thing, yes. which I've never really been able to fully get my head around as as an outside observer because I'm just like this is re- really sort of reinforcing a lot of, you know. It's 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 sort of like simplifying a very brutal, awful time period in which a large swath of people were treated as property. Yes. Right. And then to kind of just go out and do that on the weekends with your friends, it's it's a bit strange. And then, but you can almost say the same thing about if you play a game like Call of Duty, for example, or something like that, where you are sort of like one here, like one side is playing as the allies, one side is playing as the axis. You're almost doing the same thing. And you know, this, and there's a long tradition of this. If you go back to like tabletop games like Axis and Allies yes, and that kind of stuff, I was stuff, just thinking of that. Or exactly. Risk. Well, not no. Risk was actually more like That's around. Napoleonic. Yeah, Napoleonic. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like there's probably a World War II version of Risk at some point, um, but. This is fascinating to me how war almost becomes abstracted out into this yes. kind of and there, and there's a long history of this. This isn't this didn't just happen after World War II, right? Um, you know, if you can go back to like the German military used games to train mm-hmm. and that kind of thing um, back in like the 1800s. Yeah. So, w- what do you think about this whole idea of the concept of abstraction? Almost like the mm-hmm. sort of like postmodern view of the war as kind of like divorcing it from its original context. Yeah, that's a really good point, and that's something I was just going to say with a game like Axis and Allies. Uh, which ex- was extremely popular for decades, mm-hmm. um, still to this day. I but, think. But the the game really um, abstracts the whole war by distancing it back as far as you can get. And so, as a player, you're not taking on any of the roles of any of the actual actors, or even kind of artificial stand-ins for those actors, mm-hmm. as you do in a video game like Call of Duty. Rather, you're just manipulating the economic forces and sometimes the military forces. Well, that's really easy to distance yourself from. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there there are no death camps in Axis and Allies, no. for example. It's all just about can you use your resources in such a way that your side would win the game? Mm-hmm. And they've just built it around World War II. Well, honestly, to sell the game, I right. think. Right. I mean, there are all kinds of it. You mentioned uh, um, uh, risk, but diplomacy is another mm-hmm. one. You know, these kind of resource games or, or manipulative games where you're, you're just trying to control the, the board. Mm-hmm. And so that's really easy to get into. You don't really have to think about the human consequences of the actions. You know, little pieces are removed from the board when they're destroyed, but there's no actual death and devastation that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing is true with reenactment, I think. I have had similar reactions when I hear about German military reactors, who, mm-hmm. uh, reenactors who are uh, reenacting the Battle of the Bulge, for example. This is a really interesting aspect. I, I don't know if I were German that I would want to reenact mm-hmm. that battle as a German soldier. It's, it's hard to wrap my head around. And yet I kind of get it too, because there's a, a strong narrative, there was a strong narrative in Germany that the German military was not complicit in any of the atrocities. Right. And so you could still valorize the German army mm-hmm. as doing their duty, right? And excuse them because they're not the ones who committed the atrocities. They were not actually the Nazis. Those were they were the Nazis were the ones right. who committed the atrocities, the SS, the Gestapo. And so forth. Of course, we know now that that's not the case, mm-hmm. that the military did commit atrocities. But but that kind of distancing well, where you can say, well, that's not me. That was them. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I wouldn't behave like that. And so I'm going to continue to valorize what I believe in. Mm-hmm. But I think some of that's changing to get back to Axis and allies, you know, in a game like Call of Duty. It's much more immediate, right. and as the graphics of computer games become more and more powerful and more and more realistic, depending on the how the game is written, it may be harder and harder to distance yourself from those mm-hmm. kinds of experiences. And, and I think what's also fascinating because I have not played the new one. Um, I, I played the. Uh 
the only thing they've put out so far is a beta that's just based on the multiplayer. So you're swapping teams back and forth. Mm-hmm. You're either the axe, and they, they conspicuously do not include swastikas mm-hmm. uh, in the multiplayer. They use, I think, kind of like, uh, I don't know if it's the Iron Cross or it's some sort of like yeah, thing. Yeah, just similar. the basic cross. Yeah, yeah. and so, the, which is deemed, and they even have like some merchandise of the, because there's a zombies mode in the game where you fight against <laughs> uh, zombies that are reanimated. But even in that um, version, um, like they have like promotional things that they're giving away for people mm-hmm. who pre-order the game of a little zombie with an Iron Cross on his shoulder again not using the swastika but still using mm-hmm. sort of the iconography and regalia of the german military at the time um so and that might be a whole other conversation <laughs> but you know the whole idea of this notion and, and it gets back to this kind of thing i've noticed and i think it's drawing from a lot of the same well because if you look at the idea of world war ii as a metaphor mm-hmm. of the idea of world war ii as kind of grist for the mill of telling stories that are not historically driven I mean, you can go back to Captain America. Mm-hmm. You could look at um, Star Wars to an extent as being oh, absolutely. Kind of, but, um, though I find actually kind of interesting that there are there are readings of Star Wars that see it as a more critical kind of approach to militarism and to um, Americans as occupiers and that kind of thing. I don't know if that I, I'm I, I I don't know if we want to necessarily go down the road that road <laughs> right now. Um, but it is interesting that you know World uh, Star Wars draws from World War II very heavily. Yes. Um, Lucas is very heavily influenced by serials from that era. Yes. Um, you look at things like uh, Wolfenstein, um, which is takes the complete opposite approach of not even trying to be historically accurate and instead telling the story where you're fighting against like superhuman Nazi soldiers, you know, mm-hmm. Hitler in a mecha suit. That kind of stuff, and in the most recent one, just kind of like looking at a you know the Nazis and the KKK sort of work together to essentially conquer America, and it's you and like a group of freedom fighters trying to take it back, and the the marketing that game really kind of plays on that. You look at uh, Tarantino's and Glorious Bastards. Yes. Um, what do you think about this whole notion of using World War II and trying to tie it to these sort of more fantastical mm-hmm. or more postmodern or abstract interpretations of it? Yeah, I, well, I don't know if I'd characterize it as postmodern necessarily, but as you said from the beginning, there's this this interest in the kind of fictional, um, the use of World War World War II as a background for fictional narratives, mm-hmm. uh, which we talked about earlier. Comic books are a great example, right? You know, famously the first. Uh, first issue of Captain America has Captain America punching out Adolf Hitler. Yep, and you know so this this fantasy from the beginning, uh, and then a lot of those those comics in in the the early to mid forties. You know you have the Human Torch and you have Prince Namor and, and all of these character these fantastical characters uh, who sometimes fight against Nazis and sometimes don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting, they're almost always fighting on the home front. That's probably another conversation as well. But mm-hmm. So in other words, this is very common. And this gets back to what I was, I was talking about at the very beginning, this kind of fascination of why. One of, the, one of the questions this always begs then, right, is, well, what if? Mm-hmm. Right? What if things had gone differently? What if uh, Hitler had not come to power? Or, right. of course, the much more popular one is, what if the Nazis had won? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that just opens up a whole range of great stories that you can tell, some of which are, are um, actually really well done. And so one of my favorites is Philip K. Dick's uh, Man in the High Tower, mm-hmm. High Castle, um, which imagines an Axis victory. What would the United States, what would California specifically look like had the Japanese and the Germans won uh, World War II. And of course, Dick was a much more critical writer, Mm -hmm. and so he used it as a way to convey ideas about contemporary uh, American capitalism. So this would have been early 60s. He was, was, I I believe you could characterize Dick as sort of part of the counterculture at that point, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and of course, that's just been remade into an ongoing series by HBO or Uh, Amazon. Amazon did it. I tried watching the first episode. I had a hard time getting into it. The the pacing was very, very slow. Yeah, yes, it is. The first season's quite good. The second season, maybe Mm -hmm. not so much. But that's just one example. And and that's one of the better examples. Mm -hmm. I'd highly recommend uh, The Man in the High Castle. But you get all kinds of wonderful and weird stories about, you know, there's, uh, oh, what's the one that came out a few years ago? Uh, Iron Sky, I think it okay. is. Have you yeah. seen this? Um, it sounds really familiar. So, it, you know, it's the story that the Nazis at the end of the war escaped to the moon and they've built a okay, moon yeah. base yeah, and they've been living this. there for 70 years uh-huh. and now they're going to invade the earth. And uh-huh. um, it's just really wild. There's actually some interesting critical elements uh, in there. At one point, an, an African-American astronaut is captured by the Nazis and they turn his skin white, mm. uh, which 
is doing all kinds of wonderful play on racial ideas mm-hmm. and and so forth. And of course, the Nazis can't understand that the man is upset that he's been turned white. And mm-hmm. the, the simple question is, don't you want to be white? Everyone wants to be white. And so there's some interesting stuff going on there. But this just just amazingly fantastical story that there might be Nazis living on the moon uh, or wherever else. In Antarctica is mm-hmm. another one that's very popular. I remember there's a Dead Snow or something. It's like a Nor- I think a Norwegian movie mm-hmm. where essentially they're, they uncover zombies. Uh, like so, they do the Nazi the Nazi zombies thing happens a lot. I've noticed yes. they keep and, and and I think like in that case it's kind of interesting because getting back to that whole notion and I, I, we're getting we'll get back to the point I promise. Um, <laughs> but getting back to that notion of the whole idea of Nazis kind of the ultimate villain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't feel bad like you know uh, like you're not supposed to feel bad about uh, fighting them or seeing them get mm-hmm. defeated or blown up or whatever. I mean Indiana Jones, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But then like combine also combine that with Nazis who are sort of by definition metaphorically the opposite of human who are kind of like happy human form so like there's a whole sociological level to that oh i agree 100 percent. that's fascinating i was going to bring that up when you brought the not the the zombies up earlier uh and you know i think there's been a lot of critical stuff written on zombie films right i'm sure you've read a bunch of this but you know george romero's classic uh zombie film dawn of the dead and so forth uh have often been read as these kind of um uh, you know, metaphors for fear of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that extends to the Nazis, too. As you said, the Nazis are supposed to be the opposite of human, kind of monstrous and unkillable and not really alive mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. But there's another dimension, too. You know, the zombies are, are also mindless, right? right. They, they can't think for themselves. They're just following this kind of rote programming. Mm-hmm. Um, robots often stand in, have a very similar function right. as zombies do. Uh, and Romero's films and the zombie films of the 70s were often geared towards the Cold War and the fears of um, communists. And consumerism, too. I mean, uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead very famously takes place in a shopping in mall. In a shopping mall, reason, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so the critical of, criticism of capitalism and consumerism. Mm-hmm. But the fear, you know, in, in other films, too, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? That these sleeper agents that you can't really... Um, reason with you know there's no way to convert them to your way of believing they're just going to come after you until you're you're all destroyed you're all dead and so the only thing you can do is fight back right uh, and nazis lend themselves to that too the whole idea of of uh, of being brainwashed, of following orders blindly, of not questioning mm-hmm. uh, of being inhuman uh, I think it fits very well so as a historian, I mean, like, you know, we talk about these fantastical elements, and these ways that we use, um, you know, these alternate histories and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Do you think that there's value to that? Or do you think that it sort of cheapens history? Like, do you think that we're taking, because mm-hmm. when we think about like how we relate to, you know, the, the monomyth around, uh, to, to borrow a term from Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Um, if we think about the monomyth um, surrounding World War II, how much do you think that our popular culture and kind of trying to simplify this or turn it to an abstract kind of approach to this where we remove it from its original context, how much do you think that um, affects or maybe even hurts our understanding mm-hmm. of, the, of the war? That's a great question. Um, I think it can be either. Uh, and I think it depends largely on the person telling the story and what his or her goals are, um, if they have goals. I right. mean, so you, you might just be telling a story because, hey, this is fun. Let's tell mm-hmm. a story about Nazi zombies on the moon. Who wouldn't love to see that? I mean, that's a great one-sentence pitch, right? Yeah. Like, you, you, could, you could open a lot of doors with that pitch. Uh, you probably, that, you're welcome. There you go, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> There's your next film. Uh, but anyway, you, you, on, you know what I'm saying, yeah. right? Is that... And, and there's something that's okay with that. You know, escapism is all right mm-hmm. um, uh, on occasion, as long as we re- remember that this is escapism, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it can be damaging, too, when, when a story neglects to tell some aspect of the truth. And, of course, mm-hmm. a subject like World War II is just too complex to tell everything. Mm-hmm. But often you can very easily... Um, glide over some of the truth and present a narrative in a very particular way um, that can be dangerous, Mm -hmm. that can, you know, kind of highlight one particular way of looking at at uh, at World War II. And and that's largely what Americans have done for the last 70 years is to tell this one narrative of what happened, ignoring 
uh, our own history right. uh, with African Americans, Native Americans, our own behavior during World War II, mm-hmm. which was not always pristine. Uh, of course, it's almost like a like that idea of like the carbon offset credits. If you if you do this thing, it gives you freedom to kind of like ignore or move past these other things you've done. It's like sort of like almost That's like right. buying. Um, legitimacy or like or or like kind of like saying yeah we did some bad stuff but we also did this really good thing yeah right that's right yeah i agree um and 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 of course it doesn't um the better thing to do would be to confront the mistakes we've made the Mm -hmm. atrocities we've committed and come to terms with them uh in this i think germany's actually done quite a good job coming Mm -hmm. to terms with their own past it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but uh they've they've tried they've made the effort on the other hand, you know, to get back to your, your original question, Brian, I think uh, alternate history or allo history or, or whatever you want to call it um, is really useful mm-hmm. um, because it can be used to point out, well, there's two levels. There's just kind of alternate history where we ask, what if? Mm-hmm. What would the world be like if uh, you know Hitler had won or, or if Hitler had died, which is actually a more interesting narrative? Because it allows us to ask that question of, well, what was really significant about what did happen. And so it's a way of kind of shedding light on, on the, the importance of particular events, choices, actions, uh, or what have you. The other aspect of that, the more fantastical aspect, I think is also very useful. Um, because again, it now depends on, on the writer mm-hmm. and the goals, but a writer like Philip K. Dick, for example, is able to use that fantastical alternate history scenario really to examine um, very serious cultural trends. Uh, and I think there are a lot of good examples of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just throw out one uh, that's actually before the war. So there's a, um, a fantastic book called Swastika Night. Uh, was written by a woman by the name of Catherine Burdekin, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an English woman. She wrote it in 1937. She had to publish it under a pseudonym, Murray Constantine, because she couldn't sell it as a woman. Mm-hmm. This is 1937. It imagines a Nazi victory mm-hmm. um, in a world war. So it's prescient in some ways. But it is, a, it is an incredibly disturbing vision of what a Nazi world would look like. Um, and she's really able to see what some of the dangers of Nazism and fascism were, particularly for women. Mm-hmm. And so as a, a female writer, she was very interested in what, what would happen to women in that world. Um, but that kind of thing, to, to explore those ideas about what values would be held, what would the world look like, what would happen to women or uh, people of color uh, or different classes um, it is a really valuable um, mm-hmm. tool, I think. Well, and I think also, too, the idea of using the conflict to um, sort of draw parallels to contemporary society. And this might be a, a conversation we can circle back to a little bit later. But I'm thinking of, I've been reading some of the conversation around the new Wolfenstein game. Mm-hmm. Okay? okay, And again, we talk about Wolfenstein primarily as an alternate history, sort of like sci-fi fantasy take on World War II. And what's interesting is that a lot of the dialogue and the the collectibles you pick up in the game, like you can find like um, uh, newspaper articles and that kind of thing that are written from that perspective of the, of the alternative history. And one of them is actually making fun of a Mother Jones article that was published talking about uh, Richard Spencer, the uh, mm-hmm. where they talk they call him the dapper white nationalist. Mm-hmm. And the, so the um, in this one is they they refer to the dapper young KKK member that's changing America. <laughs> um, and then like you know some of the dialogue is like mm-hmm. literally taken from contemporary political conversation and speeches and, and memes and discussion. And and I wonder, do you think that this also kind of like is there a potential problem in trying to draw those parallels, or do you think that these are useful again, kind of tying to that larger discussion about alternate history as a way of grappling with this? Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is like what what, what do you uh, react to that sort of thing? That, that's another good question, Brian. Uh, I think there can, as I was kind of saying before, I think there can be value, but I think there's also a very thin line that you need to be careful with where you move over being really critical Mm -hmm. and examining something and trying to understand it and instead are just being um, are just ridiculing somebody or even just like accusing somebody of something without any real evidence or without a sufficient understanding of of all of what you're saying Mm -hmm. and and that just becomes dangerous because then you're just creating new myths right Mm -hmm. so the danger there is that Spencer just becomes oh well he's a fascist or Mm -hmm. he's a Nazi or whatever which probably 
really isn't the case, right? Um, there are, and there are other things that we should be examining about what that person is doing or isn't doing. Uh, and But this is very common because it's very easy to do. It's very easy to throw out words and accuse people or label them. Mm-hmm. Uh, human beings have been doing this, well, as long as there's recorded history, right? As long as there's an us and a them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Greeks referred to anyone who wasn't Greek as a barbarian. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very useful way of kind of distinguishing, well, the Greeks have civilization and barbarians, quote unquote, do not. Uh, and so they're lesser beings than than the Greeks were. Um, and you see that in American culture, you know, centering around World War II. And it comes up at certain moments, depending mm-hmm. on the economics and the culture. The 1960s, again, to, to go back to that, was a really interesting period where you have the baby boomers coming up and you have very liberal, progressive young people in college. But you also have very conservative young people either working in the business world mm-hmm. uh, or, frankly, just going out and getting jobs. Right. You know, This is a moment before everyone is expected to go to college. And so you have these conflicts between uh, that are based on class, upbringing, education levels, uh, political values. And each side is calling the other using these epithets that they don't really understand. And mm-hmm. so the leftist... Uh, students, students are calling, you know, the workers fascists, and the workers are calling the students socialists or communists, and neither term really applies. Right. And so you've just muddied the, right. the whole situation because you don't really know what it means to be a socialist or a fascist uh, or what have you. So your argument isn't so much that these ideas are not reprehensible or whatever, but rather just that the term means a very specific thing. Well, both. So yeah. I actually think fascism is reprehensible. Right. I don't want to give you the, the wrong impression about that. Of course. But you know, going out and calling somebody a fascist because they disagree with your attitude towards... Um, I don't know, um, the voting age, let's right, say. Right. Well, you're a fascist because you want to raise the voting age. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that no, that has nothing to do with raising the voting age. But it's a very easy thing to do, right, to denigrate your opponent. Uh-huh. You're a fascist, right? Mm-hmm. And immediately there's this association of, oh, wow, well, I'm not going to associate with that guy. He's a fascist, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no, not at all. The same with socialism. Socialism is maybe even more misunderstood. Right. Uh, and so it's very easy, especially given our history with the Cold War, you label somebody a socialist or a communist, and you can almost feel people you know, recoil from that person because, oh my goodness, we can't have anything to do with socialism or communism. Um, whether or not those ideas in and of themselves are, are reprehensible mm-hmm. or problematic uh, or whatever. Well, let me uh, kind of circle back around to another idea here. Um, and the idea of the, these, the World War II as metaphor, and I know you're a big Captain America fan. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's fascinating. We can talk about him for a second. Okay. Um, Captain America, arguably, and, and you give me your take on this, but okay. here's my read of the situation. He was created by Jack Kirby and Joe Simon, mm-hmm. um, both of whom had um, some familial ties uh, to Jews in Europe. Yep. Uh, we're both Jewish men. Um, I, th- I think Simon was, correct? Yes. Yes, he was. Yep. Okay. Um, Kirby, obviously, very much so. And um, both ethnic and culturally. And they created this character as d- a direct sort of challenge um, to the the rise of Nazism. That's right. Um, at a time in America where we were kind of staying out of it, right? Yeah. And, and they'd actually been, they were actually criticized. We like to think back to that cover being this iconic thing that everybody rallied around, and certainly it's replicated mm. time and time again. Now it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking like uh, in, a, in a, the America comic, because they have uh, America Chavez, mm-hmm. who's like one of those characters Marvel's pushing a lot right now. The, the first issue of her standalone comic, she goes back in time and punches Hitler. Yeah. And it's an exact sort of, almost like um, direct framing of that original cover. Yeah. Um, except now it's a um, lat- uh, a queer Latina woman doing it, so it's even more symbolically potent. That's right, yeah. Um, but uh, the whole idea of you know th- this was this was a character designed specifically to combat Nazism mm-hmm. and, and combat that sort of attitude. But over well, time, that changes. Well, I'd go even further. So at the time that Simon and Kirby created the character, 
early 1941, as you said, the United States is not in, in World War II yet. And in fact, the overwhelming attitude of Americans is not to be in World War II. We don't want anything to do with it. Because we'd just gone through World War One. It was a that's, tremendous... That's a large part of it, yeah. absolutely. There's a lot of isolationism. Mm -hmm. There's also large populations of Irish and Germans in America, right. especially in influential places like New York. Right. Uh, and so... You know, the, there's this whole attitude of we're not going to get involved in the war. So Simon and Kirby do create Captain America as an opponent to, to Adolf Hitler and Nazis. But it's also a propaganda movement to say, to tell Americans, we should be in the war. We right. should be fighting Adolf Hitler. That's why he's Captain America and not super not, not, not for example superman right? Exa like that's exactly right he's wrapped in the flag for that reason that's right we should be over there doing something right. and as you said you know coming from a couple of young men of jewish background we can understand why mm -hmm. they might want want to push this kind of thing but that's actually one of the things that really fascinates me about the character is that um very often and i would argue when the book is at its best Captain America is out of step politically and culturally mm -hmm. with the rest of America. And so that first year or two, when Simon and Kirby are, are basically using the character to say, we should be fighting evil. Right. There I've used that word again. We should be fighting the Nazis or the Japanese or whatever. Mm -hmm. And certainly there are problems with the book. The book is not free of racism no. and, and so forth. Nor were pretty much, nor was it any comic. Like they were exactly. all... Yeah, like go back and read some old Wonder Woman, go back and read some old Superman. That's and right. Yeah, it's 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 problematic. Let's yeah. just call it that. You know, and he's really good in that in in that period. But at other times, he's been less valuable. So mm -hmm. uh, in the nineteen, the character dies off after a while. After World War II, uh, you know, the 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 company doesn't know what to do with him, and so the comic basically becomes a horror comic book with Captain America fighting you know zombies and draculas and and, and not nazi zombies just yeah. you know regular kind <laughs> just, of just standard zombies and so you know the character loses some of his his appeal his power they bring him back in the 1950s but they bring him back as as a commie smasher right, right. and the character is decidedly weaker he, he doesn't have as much force as he did before then in the 1970s steve Englehart gets gets a hold of him and he writes him in opposition again and so there's a real famous storyline called Secret Empire mm -hmm. from the mid-1970s, right after Watergate. And Steve Rogers, Captain America, discovers that um, a covert group has taken over the United States, and implying essentially that Richard Nixon is a puppet for this, mm -hmm. this other power. And so Steve Rogers quits being Captain America and goes into opposition. And it's a really great storyline that really begs... You know, it allows us to kind of think about, well, what is going on politically mm -hmm. in America? You know, Captain America, from people who stand outside of comic books, who don't read the comic books, mm -hmm. often see Captain America as this very pro-nationalist, you know, statist character mm -hmm. that can be manipulated. And certainly sometimes he is manipulated, uh, you know, for nationalistic reasons. But when he's written well mm -hmm. by people like Steve Englehart or Ed Brubaker... Um, it allows it really allows those those writers and those artists to delve into the character and and try to to look at American mm -hmm. politics more critically. Well, I find it kind of fascinating because like I'm thinking of like the Ultimates version of Captain mm -hmm. America by Mark Miller, um, who is who is absolutely the kind of like stereotyped image that people outside the comics world yeah. have of him. Like there's that very famous panel of him fighting an enemy. And, and like yelling something about surrender, surrender. You think this A on my head stands for France? Yeah. Which was such, at the time, like, there's there's a sort of like, um, I guess, churlishness to the Ultimates as a concept. And that's mm -hmm. almost sort of endearing. But that was very much a sort of response to what this guy would have thought. Like, because this was at the height of the Freedom Fries, kind of. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if you're not with us, you're against this kind of stuff in the Iraq War. And... That, I mean, and, and it's such a sort of fundamental misunderstanding, I think, of that character. Yeah. Even though it is an alternate universe character that technically doesn't count, quote unquote. Yeah, right. Um, but what's interesting is that you do have this notion that uh, is the, you know, if you're wrapped in the flag, you must stand for this. And I think to the, to the film's credit, they have at least engaged the idea that um, Steve Rogers is a man who stands for an ideal, not so much That's for right. government. And, you know, in, in both Winter Soldier and Civil War, he actually actively 
rebels against that's right. what the government's telling him to do. Yeah, that, and and that's what I mean when I say that you know it's it's totally dependent on the writer and the right. artist and and the story that they want to tell. Uh, and those are really good moments. Civil War, in particular, but uh, Winter Soldier, and that—I mean, Brubaker's whole run is is mm-hmm. really wonderful. I think, but really questioning those ideas. And and again, that's what I think. Steve Rogers, Captain America, is at his best is not when he stands for the U.S. government. Just because he wears the flag on his body doesn't mean that he stands for that symbol, mm-hmm. but rather for the ideas—freedom, democracy, yeah. equality. Um, and the character is best when he actually defends those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so early on in Nick Spencer's run, which just came to an end last month, this month, um, you know, when he took over the Sam Wilson version of Captain America, which there are a number of problems with as well. But one of the early things he had Sam Wilson, Captain America, doing was going out and defending illegal immigrants. Right. Right. And protecting them against the kind of churlish white supremacist, uh, white supremacist um, people who were, who were taking actions against them as well. Again, drawing attention not to necessarily um, the illegal immigrants, but to the way people treat people of other colors, mm-hmm. other cultures, ethnicities, values, uh, and so forth. And, and, really, this is, and this is not new territory for Captain America either. Exactly. He's done this multiple times. I, I remember like right after 9-11, there's a very famous uh, yes, shot in his comic example. of him you know, protecting um, people of Middle Eastern descent against from a, from a group that's like throwing rocks at them and threatening them. Um, and, and so that old idea of him, the, of, and I think the whole idea of the, holding the shield, I think, is a really powerful metaphor. You could have, mm-hmm. um, and the, whenever I see him like drawn with a gun, I'm like, I don't think you're quite getting why he has the shield, yeah. right? It's meant to be a protector, defender. Um, so there's nothing wrong. So that you know, that's absolutely in line with it. But Spencer's work kind of takes a turn. It does after that, <laughs> an unfortunate one too. And, and like I said, he, when he's writing the Sam Wilson, for those of you who don't know, Sam Wilson is the Falcon, mm-hmm. and so the longtime sidekick, an important figure in his own right, has the first African-American hero in comic books, um, and also problematic for that reason, too, that Mm -hmm. an African-American man is a sidekick. Nevertheless, um, a couple of years ago, he was given the opportunity to carry the shield himself and kind of merged his two characters, the Falcon and Captain America. And Spencer did a really nice job, usually, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with kind of playing up the idea that, well, maybe this isn't the Captain America of everyone in in the nation. But recently, he brought back Steve Rogers. Steve Steve Rogers has had a convoluted history. He was killed and then brought back to life and then lost the secret, the super soldier serum. So became an old man Mm -hmm. and then got it back. And so uh, was revived. But in this particular storyline, I don't want to give too much away, Brian. It's, but, it's out. I mean, like, honestly, so, if, if, yeah, if, I, my feeling is if you're listening to this, you're probably already familiar with it or you no, weren't going to read it be. anyway. So it's, it's one there of those. There you stories. go. Yeah. yeah. And you probably don't have to read it. So if you uh, have not read the end of the Secret Empire storyline by Nick Spencer, just plug skip your ahead ears. a couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but they use a cosmic cube to, to change history, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right there, the, the plot is is off. If you're going to use the cosmic cube to cr- change history, why don't you just change it so Hydra is has, is victorious already? Right. But they use it to make Captain America, Steve Rogers, this this sleeper agent for Hydra. Mm-hmm. And in Secret Empire and the tie-in comics, then there's a moment when Steve Rogers basically takes over the United States government. And starts to use his power in a very fascistic way, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, putting down oppositional parties, invading other countries, uh, and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of fascistic Captain America is a really problematic um, uh problematic figure especially considering his origins yeah exactly well that's actually one of when he he first started writing that storyline when the 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 steve rogers captain america books were revived i held out some hope because what i thought spencer was going to do was to explore the idea of individual choice Mm -hmm. so as i said earlier in the podcast you know there everyone has a choice that during nazi germany you could have you could either do what the Nazis asked you to do, or you could choose to resist. And certainly resisting is the harder choice, but you can do it. And so in the early couple of issues, there were all of these flashbacks to Steve Rogers as a child and looking at him growing up in 1930s New York City during mm-hmm. the Great Depression. 
and he's approached by figures from Hydra uh, and so forth. And what I thought Spencer was going to do was really explore, you know, the importance of choice that in the in the real timeline, Steve Rogers has all of the opportunities. He becomes the good guy. He makes all the right choices. He runs into Dr. Erskine. He gets the super mm-hmm. soldier serum. And he becomes the good guy. In this timeline, he runs into another figure from Hydra, and he's diverted, and he mm-hmm. uses those same talents, but becomes a very different character. Right. And Spencer never really capitalizes on that, mm-hmm. I, I don't think. So it's a failure. Mm-hmm. And what we end up with is just a, a fascist Captain America with a rather weak origin, mm-hmm. one that's easy, easily dismissed. Well, it's Cosmic Cube. So mm-hmm. really the story is about how do we put the Cosmic Cube back together and change history back. Yeah. And, and if I recall correctly, the ending of the story is literally just inside the cube, real Captain America, real Steve Rogers, just fights the fake one and wins, which is a very superhero way of solving a problem like this. It's very Captain Kirk, very, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like mirror universe kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and so then he just sort of comes back and people are more or less just accepting of that. Um, which again, seems except like, for Deadpool, yeah, but maybe that's a difference. <laughs> well, he was directly affected because he like really went all in yeah. with um, the, the the sort of Hydra Captain America, yeah. and so like that's kind of. And I almost think like that's like maybe the one way they're kind of seeing like the long term repercussions of this is with a character who can kind of um, just be sort of on the periphery dealing with it. And has already had sort of reputation as an anti-hero anyway. Yeah, and there's some good there's some good evidence of that. I think uh, after. Um, um, Crisis on Infinite Earths yeah. back in the 80s where DC redid all of their universes and basically said, nope, there's one. Mm-hmm. Grant Morrison wrote this great series of stories in Animal Man where there was one character, one throwaway character who nobody likes, Psycho Pirate, yeah. who remembered the old world. Mm-hmm. And Morrison basically made his career on that one character and ended up retelling the story for the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. And that was the key for DC bringing back all of those universes. Right. More immediately, and, and related to what we're talking about, I think of Civil War, yeah, and there were occasional ones, and I'm thinking now of uh, Punisher War Journal, yeah, which at the time was written by Matt Fraction, mm-hmm. it may have been one of his breakthrough books. In that, fact, that is, I would still say one of like if if we're talking about like Punisher runs, that's one of the top three. I would say, yeah, it's it's really good. It's a riot. And what happens in the story, of course, is that Punisher should really be on the opposite of Captain America. Mm -hmm. As you said earlier, Brian, Captain America uses a shield. Punisher is all about using guns. Yeah, death, Uh, destruction, carnage. Exactly. And so this confrontation, there's some great scenes, some flashbacks and so forth between Captain America and Punisher, where Steve Rogers really tries to convince Punisher that, you know, to to basically stop using that level of violence to come to his side to be the better person. Um, and Fraction tells the story very well, this kind of a deep reflection on Punisher's mm-hmm. uh, uh, part to really think about what he's done. Yeah. Um, and after Steve Rogers is killed in the Civil War storyline, Punisher um, puts on his own stars and stripes and becomes this kind of amalgam yeah. of uh, Captain America. And As Punisher. I recall, it's a pretty cool costume. It is very cool costume. Uh, and but again, uses his powers in those few issues to again defend people of different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And so there's this really deep reflection from what at the time was more of a marginalized character, right? Um, or not marginalized. That's not the right way to put it. But somebody who's a little bit further away from the the center of the stories um, to kind of reflect on on what all mm-hmm. of that means. And it was extremely well done. And but it all comes back to that whole notion of how we sort of gravitate or how we think about the this character and 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 what he represents in the universe but also what that character represents in the larger sense Mm -hmm. and how it ties into those historical representations and how and and again i I feel like almost in a way he like he's a perfect metaphor to kind of like wrap this conversation together Mm -hmm. because like in that character you find the sort of propaganda you find the more kind of reflective sort of thing where we're sort of like criticizing it you find the alternate history Mm -hmm. the kind of like different takes on it and and all of it is wrapped up into one character that has endured for almost a century at this point. 
and is now one of the biggest characters in all of media thanks to the fact that he's one of the main stars of the Avengers franchise. Mm -hmm. That's right. So there's a lot to do uh, to look at there and and kind of as a way to sort of maybe wrap all this together because honestly we probably have enough to talk about to do two or three shows. (laughs) So we might might have to have you back on to talk about some of this stuff some more. I'd love to do that. Um, But as a historian, as an educator, what do you, what's kind of like your final thoughts or sort of like your main way? Like how should we think about World War II and, and sort of like critically engage with popular culture and media that talks about World War II to make sure that we are, you know, getting the benefits out of, you know, sort of like the fictionalization and that mm-hmm. sort of thing, while not necessarily losing sight of the actual human cost and impact of the mm-hmm. conflict, as well as its, uh, its sort of historical place in our, in our culture. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a hard thing to do. The basic thing I would recommend is to approach those kind of media critically and just ask yourself when you're watching that, you know, is this believable or or what is the author trying to convey to me Mm -hmm. with this story? What is the narrative that I'm getting and how does that match up with what I know about the events uh, or what what I think should what what I think did happen or, or so forth? And if you don't know the answer to that, if, if it leads you to more questions, then you should go and, and look some of it up and see what's actually happening. You know, just be critical of that narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, as I argued earlier, there's nothing wrong with escapism on occasion, right? Enjoying a good adventure tale is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Kelly's Heroes is one of my favorite films. Um, but I'm also aware that that film really has nothing to do with the historical realities. And when we get to other films or games or media, right, it's useful to to question those things and just say, what am I getting out of this? What is the narrative Mm -hmm. that is being presented to me here? Mm -hmm. And should I believe that? Well, Cliff Ganyard, thank you so much for coming on Serious Fun. You're welcome, really Brian. Thanks it. for having me. Yeah, it's been a wonderful conversation and certainly a lot to think about as we uh, um, continue our kind of cultural fascination with and association with this conflict. Yeah. Thank you very much, Brian. And that's our show for this week. Special thanks to Cliff Gannard for stopping by. Now, after the show, Cliff and I talked for a bit, and it turned out there was a lot of stuff that we still wanted to talk about that we didn't have time for. So we are going to be planning a follow-up to this with subjects we didn't have time to get to. So keep an eye out for that. Follow me on Twitter, at LearnOnot, if you have some questions you want to ask Cliff about uh, other things that pertain to this topic, and you might just get them answered then. Until next time, I'm Dr. Brian Carr, and this has been Serious Fun on the UWGB Phoenix Studios Podcast Network. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.